You know, one of the quickest ways to get someone to trust your business is to call your business a family business. You know, you see this written on all the ads. If you open up your mailbox, you get those uh, magnets for plumbers, um, and they all brand themselves as a family business. Some even go as far to put a picture of a, a father and a son um, on the magnet. And I wonder if you ever make the same mistake as, as me, because I chose a plumber because their ad said, family owned and operated. <laughs> and to my disappointment, the elderly man and his son didn't turn up at my house. It was actually a Chinese guy that turned up at my house who had broken English. But anyway, I was quite disappointed because I expected something. It was actually just a subcontractor who was just rushing to the next job. You know, when we say family business, we expect something like warmth, care. Uh, we, we, we want something that speaks of family, whatever that means to us. You know, the word family, it's such a loaded word, isn't it? It's a loaded word. What does the word family mean to you? Maybe family brings up emotions of disappointment, anger, abandonment. Or maybe family means support, care, warmth, love. Or for some of us, maybe family is a mix of those two things. Over the past few weeks, as we've gone through the book of 1 Timothy, we are reminded that the church isn't just called a family, like the plumber, but the church really is family. And we see this in chapter 3, verses 15, where Paul, he's writing to Timothy, the young church leader, and he tells him that everything written in 1 Timothy is there so that he will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. And do you see here that there's a, there's a clear connection between the church being a family and the truth? The quality of our relationships as family highlights the truth of the gospel. But it also works the other way as well, because the truth of the gospel is seen in the quality of our relationships as family. So in other words, truth transforms relationships. But what sort of truth would have the power to be able to transform relationships? Well, look at chapter 3, verse 16. He appeared in the flesh was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. In other words, the, the truth about Jesus' life, his death and his resurrection has the power to transform our relationships. Isn't that right? So this morning I want us to consider the connection between truth and relationships that we have. Or, or to put it simply, how has believing in Jesus transformed your relationships that you have at church? The relationships you have with your family of origin and the relationships that you might have everywhere else, like work or in the community. Because in our passage today, the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy challenges us 
to allow the gospel to, to radically transform the way we view each other as church, the way we value each other, and how we approach every single relationship that we're in. And you can follow along on the points in your outline as well. So look with me at chapter 5, verses 1 to 2, and it reads this. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. And we see here in that, these two verses that it all starts with seeing people through the lens of family. All bases are covered here. Older men as fathers, women Mothers, younger men, brothers, younger women, sisters. And did you notice that the lens that we put on isn't just any lens, but it's a lens of close family. We're not talking about seeing people as cousins or, or aunties, uncles, but seeing each other as a church as first degree, immediate family. You know, in Romans chapter 8, verse 15, it reads about how close we actually are. It reads, The spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. We have the same father. God isn't our carer or uncle or a or guardian, but he's our father. We are adopted as sons and daughters, not cousins, not friends. And through the saving work of Jesus, we have the right the right to call God in a personal and intimate way. Together we can call God Abba, Father. So there's only one lens that we can view each other with, and that's the lens of closest family. And it's a challenge, isn't it? Because there's so many other lenses that we can put on. In a growing church like this, you can put on lenses to see those who have recently come, those who have been here since 1958. There's so many other lenses that we can, we can view each other with. Even the lens of those whom I like and those whom I don't like. So what lens do you have when you view others in the church? Is it a single lens of close family or are you like one of those people that has lots of glasses in their glove box? A lens for every situation, a lens for when they're racing their car, a lens for when they're four-wheel driving, a lens when they're on holidays, a lens when they're driving on the freeway. Do you have lenses for different situations or one lens? But here in verses 1 to 2, Paul is instructing Timothy to see the church through one lens, the lens of close family. But you know, although we are all one family, you'll see that we are also very, very, very different. And there's no mistake. There's no mistake that we're different. It's a reminder that we're called to treat each other differently according to God's good order. Now, over the years, I've heard young people, uh, they seem to call everyone bro. I've seen a young man call his mum bro. I've seen a young man call ladies bro. I've seen them call people in authority bro. I've even seen a young man call a barking dog a vending machine bro. You know, 
for this young man, for, not for this young man, I mean for these young men, <laughs> well it is this young man I can see in my head right now, everyone to them is the same, they're just bro. But as God's household, we are called to treat and view each other differently according to the order and the place that God has put each other in our lives. You know, it's such an amazing opportunity that we have here in our church to express that truth because we don't have an 8.30 service in the morning for older people. We do not have a family service for young families. We don't have a young workers' church in the evening. We simply have one service here that looks like this. People together whom the one lens of the gospel are family Family, which includes fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. So in one way, we don't have a family service in that narrow definition of family, referring to parents with young children. We don't have a family service, but we, we do have a family service as well. We actually do. We're fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, demonstrate the truth of the gospel in how they relate to one another. So as you put on the lens of seeing each other as family, do, do you see this truly as a family service, a family gathering? Because in these, just these two verses, we're challenged, aren't we, to, to have the right definition of, of family. But as we look at the church through the lens of family, we should be seeing that the truth of the gospel transforms how we value one another. And in verses 3 to 24 of our passage, the key word, there's a key word that holds it all together, and it's the word honour. And I'll use the ESV translation on the screen, verse 3, honour widows who are truly widows. Verse 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honour. What it means to honour a person is to value a person. Timothy is called to direct the church to value widows and value elders. But why? Why specifically value these two groups of people? Why aren't other groups mentioned here? Well, let's, let's think about this closely. Who do we tend to value as a family of God? Who do we tend to value? Who do you value? You know, the word value is just as loaded as the word family. Have you ever heard someone describe someone as good value? It's quite commonly used within the church. It's commonly used outside the church. But when we say somebody is good value, what are we actually saying? I think what we're trying to say is that we honour and we value a person for who they are, based on what they do, what they are like. Sometimes we meet a person who has certain gifts, wise words, a great personality, great potential, and we call them good value. And there are many people here that fit that description. And we thank God for you. But here in our passage, we are not called to look for good value. We are called to look for right value. Right value. And although everyone is valuable in, 
the sight of God, there are certain people within the family of God whom we are to rightly value. And the first group of people we are to value in the church are widows. But not just any widows, but widows who are really in need. The phrase really in need, it comes up three times in the passage. It comes up in verse 3, verse 5, verse 16. Because we're called to really be discerning and seek out the one who is truly in need among us. So, Paul gives us three filters that allow the church to really find the truly vulnerable widow whom we are to value. So the first filter is that they are truly alone. Look at verse 5. The widow who is really in need and left all alone, which means they have no family to be able to help them. They literally only have God. Now you might say that's just not possible in this day and age. We have social services. We have social security. We have aged care. But the idea of being left alone is not about, it's about having no family around. Lots of social services and no family is alone. Paying for someone's care and having no family around is alone. So this widow is truly alone. The second filter is that they are faithful people. They have a clear reputation of being disciples of the Lord Jesus as seen in their love for others. So in verses 9 to 10, we see her being known for her faithfulness in her own family, loving her husband and children, but also faithful to her church family, washing the feet of the Lord's people. The third filter is that they are truly outside the age of opportunity. In verses 11 to 15, Paul speaks of widows who are still young and able to take hold of opportunities to support through, uh, to get support through pursuing a marriage once again. But the widow who is truly in need will be too old to, to find a partner or to bear children, which in this case in the passage here, is identified as someone above the age of 60, as we see in verse 9. So as you go through those three filters, what we're left with are widows who are really in need, whom the church is to value through caring for them, just like family. But this process of valuing those who are really in need isn't just for our church family, but also for our family of origin. See, the the false teachers that Paul warns Timothy about in chapter 3 are promoting a faith that disconnects ourselves from all the existing relationships in our lives. It's like saying that just because we have a new family in Christ, we can now disconnect from our our, our, uh, um, our relationship with our birth families. We have a new family now, so forget about them. That's not the case. Look at verse 4. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn first of all to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. In other words, if your father, your mother, your grandpa or your grandma is still around and lo and behold, you're still around, 
If you're a Christian, you need to consider them. Consider your care for them. They are a major factor in your life. Look at verse 8. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Very strong language, isn't it? Paul's warning Timothy that even unbelievers who don't know the transforming power of the gospel and God's love are still able to help and look after their vulnerable family members. And if we don't provide care for our own family, then we are behaving as if we've denied the transforming power of the gospel in our closest relationships. So if you still have parents or grandparents around, how are you caring for them? But before we delve too deep into that question, we need to remember the context here. Because the repeated phrase is really in need. Really in need. This means we need to be discerning about how we care for our parents and our grandparents. Because sometimes families can put the burden on children and family members to provide care that covers wants rather than needs. So does regularly providing money to parents for overseas holidays, is that caring for needs or wants? Giving time and money to parents in order to maintain a certain lifestyle, is that caring for needs or wants? The point here is, as Christians, we are called to look closely at our relationships within the church family and within our birth families. Identify, discern those who are truly in need and truly vulnerable and respond by valuing them through real practical support. And it could be with your time, it could be with your money, it could be with your presence. Because the way... We value the most vulnerable in the church and the most vulnerable in our families of origin highlights and upholds the truth about a God who saved us in our most vulnerable time, in our time of need of salvation and life through Jesus Christ. And that's why. That's why we value and honor widows and family members who are really in need. Now, the second group we are called to value is seen in verse 17. Verse 17. The elders who direct the affairs of the church are, well, uh, are, are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. We are to value those who lead the church well, especially those who teach and those who preach. But do you notice that they're not just to be honored? They are to be Double honoured. Double value. Why does that group of people get double the value? Well, it's not because they're better than everyone else. It's because of the role. It's because of the role they are called to do. The role of teaching and preaching is especially pointed out here because it's of greatest importance. It's the teaching and the preaching of the gospel. That's the very foundation of everything that we do in the family of God, without teaching and preaching the truth, we just become a group of people trying to do good things and trying to make good of a situation that we're in. But the teaching and preaching of the gospel is the source. It's the source of our transformation and the fuel 
of our actions. It's like every driver needs to give double honor, double honor to petrol stations because they are the the very ones that give you the fuel to drive. And that's why we are to double honor those in the church who are responsible for putting forward teaching and preaching. And what does it mean to give double honor? It doesn't mean to give them two nods. It means to firstly value and honor by offering our overall support, our prayers, our respect. But the second honor is to value them with our money. That's why in verses 18 to 19, Paul reminds us to pay our leaders fairly so that they can function, so that they can have enough space to concentrate on the task of teaching and preaching. For Scripture says, verse 18, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. When we fairly pay our elders who teach and preach, What we are saying is truth, truth matters. That's why the bulk of our church budget is given to word ministry above all. So maybe those of us who give through direct debit, we can change that payment description with truth matters. Or at least see your giving as a sign of double honor. But we're not just called to value elders like this with our money but to value them to value their position why because their position is so intertwined with preaching and teaching the truth and we're called to to not treat their positions just like any other job in the workforce but ensure that there's adequate consideration to ensure that the right person is put in the position of teaching and preaching So in verse 22, do not be hasty in laying on of hands, which means we're not to be too quick to appoint a person into a teaching and preaching role because of the serious nature of it. We're to further honour and value the position by ensuring that we place adequate protections around how we handle accusations against an elder. So in verse 19, it says, do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. But we're also to have adequate protections for the church. So so in verse 20, we're to openly reprimand an elder if they are sinning and bringing dishonor to their position and to the gospel. So as we double value elders who teach and preach and feel that immense weight of the position, it's a weighty position. But we are to never forget that ultimately God is the one who raises these leaders. God is the one who appoints these leaders and God is the one who keeps these leaders. And and that's why I think in verse 23, Paul reminds Timothy to, to be at peace. Know that God's got this. So, Timothy, you take care of yourself. Look at verse 23. Stop drinking only water. Use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Look after yourself. In other words, God knows what's going on. God is a God of truth. So everything that happens in the family of God will eventually be known. You don't need to control and know everything. So in verse 24, the sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden 
forever. So by rightly valuing those who are truly vulnerable in our church family and in our family of origin, and double valuing elders who lead by preaching and teaching, we as a church become a living example of what it looks like to be a household of God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. And this truth transforms how we approach all our relationships, including the relationships we have outside of church and family of origin. The truth transforms how we approach all relationships. So in chapter 6, verses 1 to 2, Paul gives Timothy an example of a pretty common relationship seen in those days between a master and a slave. And he shows that the truth of the gospel will radically transform even that general, everyday, working relationship. Now for us, we might get the wrong idea or clouded idea of this slave and master, what slave and master is. Mixed up with our views of horrific slave trades of Africa in the past. That's not what is being referred to here, but rather it's a common relationship that's essentially between a worker and an employer or a debtor and a creditor. Many of us are in those sort of relationships, aren't we? So this applies to us. And we see that the truth of the gospel puts our position as either a slave or master in a new light. For those in slavery should honour or value their masters so that, if you look at chapter 6 verse 1, so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. This means that the way we relate to our masters, our employers, our creditors, or anyone we are under obligation to serve puts God's name and God's truth fully on show. And sometimes in these general everyday types of relationships, we we might even encounter believers as our earthly masters. And in those cases, slaves are called to serve and value their masters even more. Look at chapter 6, verse 2. Because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. In other words, the family ties that we have with believers, with other believers, actually strengthens our existing relationships. So, for example, if you're a Christian and your boss is a Christian, the common expectation is that your relationship with them could mean that you, there's some leeway for you to slack off, treat them with less seriousness because you know them outside of work. Or if you're a Christian boss and your subordinates are Christians, you might treat them with favoritism, extra perks, turn a blind eye to some of the things they do. But what Paul is reminding Timothy in chapter 6, verse 1 to 2, is that if your boss is a fellow family member in Christ, then you should honour them even more than an unbelieving boss because you both know that the way you relate to one another will be a living example to others of how the truth transforms every relationship that you have, including the relationship, the ordinary relationship you have in your work. In other words, the family ties actually work to strengthen your working relationships. And when Christians work together, the results should be better than if you were not Christians. There are countless examples 
of people coming to know the truth of the gospel through watching the way Christian colleagues, Christian classmates, Christian neighbours, Christian acquaintances go about their ordinary relationships and work. So this morning, our passage drives us to examine if our relationships are transformed by the gospel. And we've considered different relationships in this passage. And as we consider all these different relationships, we're really brought to the heart of the letter of 1 Timothy. And it's this. If the church is the household of God, the pillar and foundation of the truth, if that's the case, then the quality of our relationships with others will either underline or undermine the truth of the gospel. The quality of our relationships with others will either underline or undermine the truth of the gospel we profess. In other words, every relationship you have will either confirm the power of the gospel or contradict the power of the gospel. So I want us to consider three relationships in our lives and see how the truth of the gospel can shape them. Number one, firstly, what's the quality of the relationships you have in church, wherever you're at? Let me suggest that we start by either calling each other or treating each other as brother and sister. We are so shocked at the young boy who calls everything bro. We should be just as shocked, even more shocked, of the church member who doesn't consider anyone as bro. So let me encourage you to put on the lens of family at morning tea. See someone who to you is either a father, a mother, a brother, a sister, and reach out to them with that lens, that attitude of bro. They are not a vending machine. They are your brother, sister, mother, father. Secondly, what is the quality of relationships that you have with your own birth family? Do you need to sit down and identify how you can practically support those in your family who are really in need? Will you be discerning to see what care is needed and what care is not needed? Thirdly, how can we prioritize the honoring of those who lead in preaching and teaching? How can we prioritize the honoring of those who lead in preaching and teaching? Maybe we need to reconsider the support we give. Maybe we need to actually identify who are those who teach and preach. These are people in the church who are ministers of congregations. These are people in the church who minister outside of congregations in places like schools, scripture teachers, chaplains, Bible college teachers. Identify these elders who are worthy of double honor, not because of who they are, but because of the work they do and seek to support them with prayer and financial support. God brought us into a relationship with him through the transforming power of Jesus Christ. 
And he has put us into all sorts, all sorts of relationships on this side of heaven so that we can reflect his love and his power. So let us consider every relationship we're in, every relationship, and allow God to transform each one to reflect his power and his love. Let me pray. Lord, as we have sat under your word and as we've considered all the different relationships that you have brought into our lives, family, church family, community, workplace, every big, small relationship, help us to value these relationships, to see them as an opportunity to show the transforming power of the gospel. We pray, Lord, that you will give us ideas as to how we can truly value who you value. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.